come this morning to the 25th lesson in our subject, The God of All Comforts. God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, pointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Sinful men are appointed to die only once, and after that they are judged. Therefore, Jesus died only once for our sins, but when He died, the judgment was cut off for us all, for Christ and for His beloved people. That is why Jesus Christ declared when He died for us, it is finished. When Jesus returns the second time, it will not be for a round two of sacrifices for sin. Rather, it will be for the salvation of the very bodies of His people whom He died to save the first time. At that resurrection, our very bodies will be redeemed. Hebrews next reminds us of the weakness and unprofitableness of the types and shadows of the old covenant animal offerings, that they could never make the penitent sinner perfect. They only pointed to the sacrifice of Christ as the only one who can make us perfect before God. The argument presented is, if those animal offerings worked, then the sinners would have no consciousness left of wrath or judgment remaining from God. They would be at peace with God for God would be truly and forever propitiated by the sacrifices of animals. The writer is arguing the need for a sacrifice that actually satisfies God for the sins of His people, and that having done so, renders His people perfect before Him and renders the sacrifice as complete and final. To the contrary, the fact that those animal sacrifices had to be repeated forever brought the sins to mind that the problem of sin and judgment had not been fully settled with God. The reason, Hebrews next argues, is that it is not possible for the blood of animal offerings to take away sin. That's because the life of a lowly animal is no adequate substitute for the life of the sinner which God's justice demands for sin. A man's life cannot be redeemed from his sins by the death of a creature of lesser value, what is required is the sacrifice of a life of greater value than that of the poor sinner. Such a life is God manifest in the flesh, the Lord Jesus, a perfect man without sin at all, who laid down his life as a fully satisfactory sacrifice for poor sinful men. Christ is an offering that puts an end to all those inferior sacrifices thereby showing that our sins are finally and irrevocably forgiven by the Holy God. In Psalm 40, Christ's Spirit, through the psalmist David, discloses God's not desiring animal sacrifices nor being satisfied with them, but rather preparing a body for God the Son. Christ announces His willingness to serve God's purpose in ending animal offerings by His own offering in their place. In olden times, the service of a man to his Lord was mostly the use and ministry of the servant's very body toward carrying out his master's desires and purposes, usually a physical manual service, sometimes rarely even unto death. Thus Christ in his human flesh, in the body that was prepared for him at the Incarnation, 
was willing to serve the purposes of God, that animal sacrifices be replaced by the offering of His body for the sins of God's people. Other scriptures bear this out. In Genesis 22, Abraham told Isaac that God Himself would provide a lamb for a sacrifice. And Isaiah 53 describes the suffering servant of God, Messiah, who died as a substitute in God's judgment of our sins, laid upon Him. And Jesus Himself stated that He came as a servant to give His life a ransom for many. Finally, Paul exulted in Christ's coming as a servant in His humanity, though He is God of very God, and being obedient unto the death of the cross. Indeed, Christ's human body as the servant of God was exhausted in His extreme service to God when He gave His life up to accomplish His Master's great purpose, the saving of His poor, helpless people by His displacement, setting aside of the animal offerings that couldn't save with His own body, which does save forever. That is why God has highly exalted our Lord Jesus, commands all the world to worship and praise Him forever. All of Christ's service in His body is part of what it meant when God swore solemn oath to Christ to make Him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. No wonder this provides us the greatest comfort that finally in Christ a sacrifice for sin was found that could finish the job of saving poor sinners from God's wrath and judgment. Now this Lord's Day we focus on Hebrews chapter 10 at verse 7, although we won't be able to finish the whole thing this Lord's Day. Hebrews 10 beginning at verse 5, Wherefore when He cometh into the world, that is Christ, He saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Of course, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 40 at verses 7 and 8. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart, I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, Thou knowest. So we get the idea that Christ is willing to come into the world to provide a sacrifice to replace the old animal sacrifices that cannot save and that do not satisfy God. And He also does so with delight. He delights to do the will of God. Furthermore, this text states that it is written in the book of me. This truth about my suffering to save the Lord's people, to make up, as it were, the deficiencies of the animal sacrifices, which merely were types and shadows that pointed to Christ. In the book, it is written of me. And then it says, I delight to do thy will. So whatever is written in the book about Christ, what He would accomplish, are things that delight the Lord Jesus in the completion of. It delights Him to do the will of His Father. In the book it is written of me, while we covered, it must have been a dozen sermons or more several years ago, 
from 1 Peter chapter 1 about many, many texts of Old Testament Scripture that described, it says, by the Spirit of Christ, described to the prophets the suffering and the glory of the Lord Jesus that was to come. In other words, in the Old Testament, we understand through the teaching of the Apostle Peter that in the places where Christ's coming and offering for sin are described, that those are the disclosures of Christ Himself to the prophets. And therefore, our benefit primarily for the prophets of olden times couldn't hardly discern what was being spoken of, when it would happen, the order in which it would happen. And perhaps it was just all too wonderful for them to wrap their minds around while they were under the curse of the law. The first, of course, instance is God's promise to Adam and Eve after they fell in the Garden of Eden, after He rebukes the snake, rebukes Adam, rebukes Eve, He says this in verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, that is the serpent and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise its heel. And so here is the Proto-Evangelium, the first promise of a Savior to crush the power and wickedness of Satan in the image of the serpent. You remember the serpent's first damage. Its most deadly damage was not through venom per se. It was through lying about God and causing God's creation, God's creatures, humanity, to believe a lie about God. You remember he said, Yea, hath God said, Thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that ye eat thereof, ye shall obtain knowledge. You shall not surely die. And this, of course, appealed to the vanity of the highest creature's mind and thought and brain, which is still the chief glory of the human race above all the other creatures and is the cause of so much vanity, confusion, and misunderstanding even as it is also a source of great understanding and knowledge and information. And so here is an offspring of the woman, a son, who will one day crush the snake, but in the process he will be stricken in the heel, in the foot, as he crushes the snake. And of course this is a prophecy given by the Spirit of Christ, of His coming one day in humanity, born of the Virgin Mary. You know, all since the fall in the garden, it has always been man's duty to protect and rescue their sisters and their mothers and their wives from vicious evil snakes. You know, the woman can screech and eek all they want, but the man is supposed to show no fear at all as he comes and disposes of the vile serpent. And one day, you see, it would be a long distance 
a long-distant great-great-great-grandson of Eve herself who had been destroyed by the wiles of this vicious serpent. One day he would come and he would finally rescue the Lord's people who trusted in him. He would deliver us all from the power of the devil, as it is put in Hebrews chapter 2. He would destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death had all their lifetime served under bondage. Christ as Savior is seen throughout the Old Testament as we studied several years ago. And we could say we know the Psalms, Psalm 22, a great portrait of the judgment of Christ by God in our place and His glorious vindication and resurrection and in Isaiah 53 where the suffering servant Messiah has our sins shifted onto Him and He is crushed and destroyed by God as a sacrifice for our sins and He justifies His people because He bears their iniquity in that judgment. And Jesus referred to all these texts in the passage we read this morning when He spoke to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And you recall what Jesus said. They were despondent that the one they thought was Messiah had been put to death. And that was the end of that. How can a dead Savior save His people? We had trusted that it would be He who would redeem Israel, but they had too low a view of what it meant to redeem Israel. They thought in terms of a king, a general, a conqueror to drive out the Romans. But Christ had always been provided first as one who could save His people from their sin. And so after they disclosed their sorrow and dissatisfaction with the way things turned out, at verse 25 of Luke 24, Jesus says, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory. In other words, the prophets clearly taught that Messiah would suffer unto death and thereby enter into His glory. What is the glory? The dying of the Redeemer to save His people. And He has died and has saved His people and will deliver His people from death in the end at the resurrection. So you see, Christ is going to then review and explain and disclose the promise of the suffering which He had just fulfilled and carried out for the redeeming of His people. And it says, Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Now, I have a selfish thing to report here that one of the things I look forward to, and I'm sure that other people who've studied the Scriptures carefully look forward to it as well, is to be able to receive this sort of disclosure from Christ from His very own lips in person one day just to see if we missed anything. <laughs> and I'm sure we did. I'm sure we did. Maybe we should all get together before that meeting and draw up a list of all the things that we think referred to Christ and to His death 
for the saving of his people in the Old Testament so we can check them off and see what it was we missed. But the Lord Jesus, you see, explains all of these things. These are the things that he referred to in Psalm 40 when he said, Lo, in the volume of the book it is written of me, that is, that I will come and take on a body by which I will set aside all the animal sacrifices that no longer satisfy our God in glory. And then we come to the phrase, I delight to do thy will. Now, in, in coming in human flesh to sacrifice himself, to take away our sins, and to shut down the animal sacrifices that God took no delight in. You see, he delights to do the will of his Father because God is not delighting in the sacrifices that were ordained under the Old Covenant. So it is necessary that one should come to fulfill the delight of God now that it has been disclosed that He does not delight in animal sacrifices. He will fulfill that delightsome thing in God's heart and mind by being made the replacement of the animal sacrifices in order that He might take away the sin of His people. And it is in fulfilling that commandment by God to Christ, laid out, of course, in nutshell, in the solemn oath He made appointing Christ a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It is fulfilling that that the Lord Jesus delights in. I delight to do thy will. Now we think a lot of times that there were points in which Christ expressed other than delight to do the Father's will. It's certainly true in His humanity that from a certain point of view, the crucifixion was a loathsome thing to Him. I don't think He was afraid of the pain or the death so much as He recoiled from being made sin for us for having our sin laid on Him, for being treated as guilty under the wrath of God for crimes that His people had committed, but that He was perfectly free from. The fact of the matter is that God does delight in Christ's sacrifice, and so does Christ delight in Christ's sacrifice. And why is this? Not for the bloody nature of it, taken by itself, but no, because it saves His people from their sin. And God loves His people and desires to see them to be saved from their sin, to enter into His joy, that He might joy in them, in the perfection which He has laid on them, in the way in which the sacrifice of His Son has taken away their sins, made them fit to come into His presence with exceeding joy. Now, even in Psalm 110, which the writer of Hebrews has dwelt on now since chapter 5 and will through chapter 10, this promise to Christ to make Him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, even in that chapter, there is a hint of delighting and rejoicing in the Lord Jesus. It starts off by saying, God said to the Lord Jesus, sit on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So there's a promise of complete and absolute victory made to Christ in this text of Scripture. 
And the Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. The people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. So there is here a poetic expression of the vitality of Christ, of the strength and vigor of Christ, of his being able to enter into his work with a sprightly step and a strong arm. And not as an act of drudgery or sad necessity or anything like that. Oh, there is a willingness there. There is a strength there. And then it says, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So some part of Christ's victory, of His domination, of His overcoming, of all that is evil, and of His saving of His people is wrapped up in this promise. He'll be made a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Then it says, The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of His wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. Here is utter and total victory by our Lord Jesus over all His foes and all the foes of God. But then look at the last verse. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall He lift up the head. This is a poetic text that describes the pursuit of Christ against His foes and on behalf of His loved ones. The pursuit of Christ will be so strong and filled with so much joy and readiness that it will require that He refresh Himself by the brook, from the brook by the way, so that He might lift up His head and continue the work which He has joyfully entered into. Christ's delight in the victory of His everlasting priesthood can be shown in this text. But then next, Hebrews itself brings up this joy of Christ all the way back in chapter 1. Hebrews 1, verse 4. Christ being made so much better than the angels, as He hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said He at any time, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Now here's a text that proves the deity of Christ, because God is speaking to His Son and calling Him God and exalting His throne. The Unitarians gnash their teeth at this text. But it's a quote from Psalm 45, which we read this morning. But then notice verse 9 of Hebrews 1. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So here you see the writer of Hebrews has drawn back from Psalm 45 a proof of what Christ said in Psalm 40. I delight to do thy will. That Christ has joy in his heart over the fulfilling of the work of God laid upon him to become the sacrifice that puts away the worthless animal sacrifices. And if you look in Psalm 
45, it is a passage that first of all describes the joy of the king, which is the Lord Jesus. Then it goes on to describe the joy of his people, the beauty of his people, the exaltation of his people. Why? Not because they're beautiful or exalted in themselves, but because they're associated with the king. They've been called into his presence. They've been exalted by virtue of the king's taking notice of them and bringing them up and clothing them with beautiful garments and receiving them into his presence. And so the joy of the king is mingled with the joy of his people towards him. And his joy then redounds as he rejoices in his people who rejoice in him. For example, in Psalm 45, Thou art fairer than the children of men, describing the Lord Jesus as King. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Here's a reference in another place where the Lord Jesus is described as meek and lowly of heart, riding upon a colt, bringing righteousness, bringing salvation. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloe and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. So here is the text that the writer of Hebrews references to justify his conclusion of the exaltation of Christ, the deity of Christ, and the joy of Christ that is set upon him by God his Father in his flesh. He has loved righteousness, hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. How glorious is it for us to have a priest who delights to do God's will for us and for God to sacrifice himself to save us. Can you ever thought of this, that our high priest is not one who's acting under some burdensome compulsion, some distasteful thing. I'm sure the ironic priest, the longer it went, the more distasteful it got, the more burdensome it got, the more weary they got, especially since what they did seemed to be so futile, didn't it? Because the sacrifices never could save. They never came to an end. There was no end in sight, was there? And even when they died, they knew that someone would come along after them to continue this perpetual offering for sin. But we have a priest, after the order of Melchizedek, who delights to do God's will. That means he delights to sacrifice himself to save us. He delights to displace the old animal sacrifices that are not delightful to God with one that is delightful to God, His own sacrifice for our sins. And what a comfort it is that He eagerly went to die and lay hold upon the 
requirements of the oath that makes him forever a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that really is why we like to call the Lord's table a celebration. It was very hard for them to be celebratory the night he was betrayed. And yet the Lord Jesus says it's to be done in remembrance of him, in remembrance of what he did to save us, how he was faithful to carry out that oath God made to him to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek to offer up the final sacrifice, the best sacrifice, the one that can take away sin and does, praise God. We are remembering, you see, at the Lord's table, our high priest's work done by the very same high priest who delights in our salvation. And could I say, it is true that he delights in our salvation right now. Right now, even as we delight in our salvation, we join Him in delighting in our salvation. The delight of Christ, which we hopefully will be able to cover next Lord's Day in further detail, is one that delights in the salvation of His people, in the accomplishment that He has wrought on Calvary's tree for us, even as God the Father delights in Christ doing His will. So Christ delights in doing His Father's will And so we delight in Christ doing His Father's will. And we're all entangled up, you see, in the delight whose center is that Christ laid down His life for His people and delighted His Father and delighted us and delights Himself also. And that's what we celebrate at the Lord's table. We celebrate what Jesus did and how good it is. And the Scriptures tell us He is right here with us in spirit now celebrating the same thing that we celebrate. You know, sometimes we get so busy that we forget when we go to a party or a celebration exactly what it is we're celebrating. It's like most people can't remember what they're celebrating on July the 4th, can they? They're celebrating their family. They're celebrating some good barbecue. They're celebrating the hot summer night. They're probably celebrating a lot of alcoholic beverages too. But can any of them much remember what they're supposed to be celebrating, which is liberty and escape from the yoke of the British monarch and the British parliament, being able to have a nation that is going to be self-governing and that will take its heavy hand off the people and let them go free? And there are many other things. Christmas, how how secularized it is and how few people can really remember what it is they're supposed to be celebrating, the birth of the Savior. And on and on and on. There are so many celebrations that people are distracted from. Where they go to the party, as it were, and can hardly recall the drunker they get just what it is they're supposed to be celebrating. Not so. May the Lord be pleased to help us in the celebration of the Lord's table. You see, He is with us in spirit now. Let us not be foolish to forget what it is that we're here for. I thought of the words of that hymn we sang this morning. Lord Jesus, Thou and none beside, its bitterness could know, that is the bitterness of His death on the cross, nor other tell thy joys full tide that from that cup doth flow. So there is a bitterness in the act of the death of Christ 
But a great tide of joy flows from that bitter cup that Christ was obedient to drink. A great tide of joy. Thine is the joy, but yet tis mine, tis ours as one with thee. You see, we're unified with Christ, with the other believers, and with God the Father as well, and the Holy Ghost. We're all unified in that joy that flowed from that bitter cup that the Lord Jesus drank up for our redemption. My joy flows from that grief of thine. Thy death brings life to me. There is the irony of it, that the joy that we have, the joy that the Father has, the joy that Christ has, it comes from the grief of Christ in dying for us on the cross to save us from our sins. And that's why it's appropriate that at this celebration of the Lord's table, we should be joyful, and yet the elements should portray the grief and the sadness that are implicit in the offering up of our Lord Jesus on the cruel cross. The bread is broken the way His body was broken. The wine is spilt the way the blood of the Lord Jesus was shed. And yet, for the Lord's people, for the Father, for the Son, for the Holy Ghost, nothing but joy flows from the grief that took place on Calvary's tree when Jesus paid the price to save His people from their sin. Let's give thanks for the Lord's table. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. The Scriptures tell us on the night our Lord was betrayed that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for our sin. O oh God, our Father, we rejoice in Your goodness to us in delivering up Your Son, Your only Son, whom You love. Even as You remarked of Abraham's willingness to deliver up his son Isaac, but we thank You that You found a substitute for little Isaac that pointed to Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of His people and that You delivered Him up for us and He delivered Himself up. He was pleased to do it even though it caused great pain and sorrow in His humanity and His body as He bore away our sin and was treated as guilty in our place. Oh God, we rejoice in the work of Christ in redemption. And we honor Him this Lord's Day around this table. Help us never to forget what we celebrate, but never to become old to us or for us to be distracted by other considerations. And we thank You that we do not get distracted by any great grandeur in our meeting place or in our procedure or in our speakers or preachers, but we can focus on the glory and grandeur of the blood of the Lord Jesus pictured by this cup that we drink. We thank You that it's His blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sin that it pictures. We thank You that He executed that new covenant and fulfilled that promise, empowered that promise that God should not remember against us our sins anymore, thereby making His sacrifice the last sacrifice for the saving of His people. Help us never to 
pretend that we're reoffering anything or representing anything, but rather we're rejoicing in the thing which He has offered and presented before you Himself as our great High Priest. Thank you for this copy left us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as you do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 143 in the black book, Isaac Watts' hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut His glories in when the incarnate Maker died for man, His creature's sin. Number 143.